Welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Kelly. And this is our roundup of blog posts for September. Simon, let's crack straight on with the papers and blog posts from our September offerings. You started off with a post here about managing harm in the emergency department. There's so much talk about this at the moment, isn't there? We're all walking into crowded departments. We're walking into departments where it's difficult to look after people. Was that the harm you were talking about here? It's arguably me being somewhat pedantic about words, but I think it's important. And again, it's from sitting in meetings where we talk about the winter pressures that are coming along and the risks of patients spending more time in the emergency department, or the risks of patients not getting onto the wards, or the risks of having patients on the corridor. I sat there thinking, well, you know, if I think about a risk, it's, it's as if something might happen. Jumping out of a plane, going parachuting is risky because it'll probably be absolutely fine. But there's a small possibility you might hurt yourself or even possibly die. That's a risk. It's got that element of possibility around it. What worried me is when we talk about emergency department crowding in particular, it's not a risk. We have the data now that shows that it's harmful. And it's not only just harmful in terms of morbidity, but people die as a result of crowding. And I think the latest trial that was done, wasn't it, with the UK data suggested that for every patient who waits more than six hours in the emergency department, you get an additional death for every eight to two patients. So that's not a risk. That is harm and it's death in the patients that we see. And so I started thinking about, well, how do we measure these sort of things? How do we keep track of them? Well, we have a risk register. And again, a risk register is a bit soft in its language. What we actually should have is a harm register. And I think there is a a difference between a risk register, something might happen, and a harm register. These things are happening and we need to do something about it. The struggle we have is that that one in 82 patients is hidden because we can't identify that it was Mrs. Miggins in bed five. If we had a clinical error that killed one in 82 patients and we could identify which patient it was, which doctor, which nurse, which clinicians were involved, we'd be all over it like a rash. But because it's a population effect, it's hidden and we don't see it. And I think that's a real problem for us. It's the wrong mindset for us. And I would like to change that. And I think words do matter. I've started for a long time, actually, since listening to Jerry Hoffman way back when, when he was doing his podcast. So the, the right at the beginning was Rick Bacatta, and you got them on a CD every month and you listen to them, the cases each month and the papers each month. And he talked about harm versus benefit. I think it's hugely important that we do talk about harm and not just risk, because risk isn't the opposite of benefit, is it? They're not the converse of each other. It's harm that is the opposite. One in 82 patients who are being harmed by being in a department more than six hours is a significant amount, particularly when we have a large number of patients who are waiting that long. There's only a few groups of our patients these days who get to come in and go out within the four hours, I'm afraid to say. And so that is talking about a significant number of patients each day, which is obviously more each week, which is obviously into the tens, if not hundreds each year for all our departments. And dare I say it, that's just not good enough. No, I completely agree. And if you look at the data in your own hospitals, when you go back from this podcast, have a look at your performance. So your performance in your hospital might be 50% against the four-hour target. But then have a look at what your performance is against the four-hour target for patients who get admitted. And in many hospitals at the moment, virtually it's virtually impossible to get admitted within four hours. So the performance at that level is very low. And that's where these numbers start to apply. I think it's real, real worry for us all that we're not doing the best that we can for patients due to systems issues. There's been a 
two sides of the coin about the four-hour target. It's existed almost as long as you and I have, Simon. We can't argue that now we're seeing why that target was important. Perhaps it was set up before we knew all this, but this is something we should be aiming for, just like we should be aiming for our patients all to have pain relief. And we should be aiming for all of our patients with infections to have appropriate antibiotics as soon as possible. We've got to aim to not have crowded emergency departments. This is a system problem. So please don't come and tell me that this is down to the emergency department. It's not. It's a whole system. It does include us in the ED and we have to hold our hands up and take some responsibility. But it's also about the patients who are coming to us from the pre-hospital area. Who's choosing to come to us? Why do they choose the emergency department? And then it's the other end. And again, these things all come together to cause this problem. I don't think you can point the finger at social care and say it's all because we can't discharge patients. It's the whole thing. Please, please, please do the bits you can and influence the bits that you can't do directly. It's going to be a tough winter. Let's see what we can do. It will be a tough winter, but no doubt knowing emergency physicians and a lot of our colleagues in general practice and and in hospital medicine generally, people will do their very best and we will try and make sure we keep our systems as safe as possible. And let's not forget, this is not just a UK problem. There is a worldwide worry about the access to emergency care. Let's talk some medicine now, Simon. Let's think about mechanical impedance device assisted CPR. We're talking about those thumpers. We used to call it a thumper, but now a Lucas device. Does it help if you're doing that head up or does it not make any difference? This was an interesting paper. So there's been a lot of chat locally about using uh, impedance threshold devices together with mechanical CPR and also potentially a head-up position to improve outcomes from cardiac arrest. And actually, the physiology around this is very interesting. And Brian Burns put a tweet out recently looking at the arterial waveform in patients who are on mechanical CPR. And you actually get negative blood pressures in some of these patients when going. So the whole physiology of what's going on during that mechanical CPR plus an impedance threshold device, which is something you put on the ventilator circuit to sort of impede and help the mechanical CPR work, and then potentially going into a head-up position, which will improve venous drainage, therefore hopefully improve cerebral blood flow. Can this make a difference? So lots of interest around it. And there's been various different studies knocking around, which have been relatively inconclusive when these things have been looked at in isolation. But there's now interest in if you put the impedance threshold device together with mechanical CPR and head up, that all three of those work together and you might actually get better things going on. So I thought that was interesting. And then a paper cropped up. It suggested, or headline figures, always like a headline figure, that it might be associated with improved outcomes. So I thought, well, that'd be worth a look. And this is one of those papers where I think it really is important to have some vague critical appraisal skills knocking about. Because what the actual paper did is it took some patients in whom they were doing this, just in a single cohort of patients, and then they went and tried to compare that outcomes in that group of patients with patients who'd been recruited to other trials in other places at other times, tried to match the patients roughly between the group that they had and these other trials, and then come to a conclusion. And, you know, kind of that's interesting. It's an interesting intellectual exercise. But from a critical appraisal point of view, it's not particularly strong in terms of the evidence. I thought this was an interesting paper to have a look at because it got me thinking about cardiac arrest and how these mechanical devices may come together to improve outcomes. But this trial is not definitive. And we definitely need to have better quality evidence before we think about change. A really interesting concept, though, really worth getting your head around what happens to arterial pressures and coronary perfusion during CPR, particularly when using mechanical CPR. So, Simon, you would suggest this is a hypothesis generation rather than anything that's going to change your practice. 
Yes, correct. But I think, again, we're going to see some more work in this area because it is quite interesting. And we're still looking for ways of improving our outcomes from CPR. One of the the issues, though, on this, and I think it's the case in many CPR and cardiac arrest type studies, it's a lot of it's about timing and whether or not you can get these interventions in early during a patient's clinical course. It's likely that, well, we were looking at it from a helicopter point of view. The problem with a helicopter is that it's probably not going to get to the patient's side in the time period where this makes a difference. So it's going to have to be more of a community-based thing. And then you've got to say, well, from a community-based thing, how many mechanical CPR devices, head-up ramps and ITDs are going to need to get all of these things? It then becomes a question of logistics. And arguably, cardiac arrest management is a question of logistics. And community response, I think. The the work that Good Sam and others have done about getting us more aware of community defibs, that early management is vital. And that's really the one thing that changes outcomes, I think. Can you get somebody by your side who knows what they're doing as fast as you can? The next paper is all about fentanyl as an adjunct in RSI and whether that affects hemodynamic stability. And I think this came up, Simon, as part of your ongoing work as part of the HEMS team up in the Northwest, which I know you've taken on just recently. So does fentanyl affect hemodynamic stability? That's a good question. It was exactly as you say, that going into an environment where people are perhaps a little bit more cautious about these drugs and realising that (laughs) Um, particularly pre-hospitally, when there isn't a lot of cavalry coming along to save you, that giving large doses of drugs, probably not a great idea. And also I went on the the pre-hospital emergency anaesthesia course run by GINAS, Great North Air Ambulance Service. And again, they were teaching that in their experience, they'd gone from a 321 to a 111 for most of the cases. They hadn't seen any problems in terms of awareness or difficulties in that area but they had seen anecdotally more cardiovascular stability and they were encouraging us to be more cautious. And that seems to be the trend in the direction of movement that we're heading for. I thought it was quite interesting in this study. So this is a randomized controlled trial. It's done in Australia. It's done by a number of our friends who work with the Sydney HEMS service, so Cliff Reed, Brian Burns, who we were mentioning earlier, um, and others, really nice people, great topic. But there's an in-hospital group. So patients in the emergency department requiring an RSI, they randomize them to either fentanyl or placebo. 142 in the fentanyl group, 148 in the placebo group. And effectively what they did is they then looked at their cardiovascular stability, which was largely based around systolic blood pressure and whether it stayed in a particular range or whether they had a, you know, a particularly large drop or rise in blood pressure during that period of time. That was the main outcome for this study. What they actually showed is on the parameters which they put in, in terms of their primary outcome for this study, is there was no difference. Now, that's interesting. They then go on to try and justify that there was a difference, which I always think is fascinating when you do a study, when you find what appears to be somebody who's done a study and then thought, actually, I'm not entirely sure that I used the right outcome measure when I designed this. That's kind of what I feel is I've got in my head. And we'll have to actually ask them in person next time we meet them. But essentially, the primary outcome was whether the patient's systolic blood pressure fell outside of 100 to 150 millimetres of mercury at any point within 10 minutes after induction, or if they had a very high blood pressure, if it dropped by more than 10%, or if I had a, a very low blood pressure, if I had a, a 10% drop or a fall outside the 100 to 150. It's a proxy measure. It's a monitor-related outcome. It's not patient-related. It's not whether or not they had morbidity or mortality afterwards. If you actually dig into the data a little bit more, it does look as if there probably is more variability if you give fentanyl to this group of patients. It hasn't triggered on what they've chosen as outcome measures but it probably does make a difference if you look at the data as a secondary outcome, not their primary, hypothesis generating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My conclusion with this study was fentanyl probably does affect your blood pressure because I kind of knew that before and this kind of put some data on it. Whether or not 
it's as clinically important as we think, I don't know. And also, there were very few patients in this study who actually had low blood pressures when they started. And that's the group that I worried about. I'm most worried about people who I'm putting to sleep who've got evidence of blood loss, for example. Very few patients like that in this study. Evidence of blood loss, they've got a systolic, which is between 90 and 105. And I'm thinking, ooh, I really don't want to drop this person's blood pressure to 60. There aren't that many patients like that in the study. So we don't know for that group. And of course, it's not a patient-oriented outcome, is it? It's a monitor-oriented outcome, as Ken Milne would remind us. We don't really know what those mean, but it is still important for us to know whether the numbers are affected because Yes, there will be some association at some point between the numbers and the patients. Will it change your practice? No, because I think my practice has already changed. It might change my uh, my degree of eyebrow raising if somebody suggests giving a very large dose of fentanyl to a patient who looks as if they might be cardiovascularly unstable in the research room. I have to say, I take into some consideration the fact, does the patient have pain? I think about my transport times if I'm pre-hospital and how long it's going to take me to get to hospital. You know, if there's legs bent all over the place, that's surely got to hurt. And I'm about to paralyze them. And the last thing I want is for them to be aware we talk about awareness as in the patient's aware that what's going on, we just can't sense it because their muscles are all paralyzed as being a never event. And it really should be a never event. And perhaps fentanyl can help. But we've got the other things we can do for pain as well, whether that's the pre-hospital environment or in the recess room. So splint those limbs. Think about other ways that you can take pain away. The, of course, the ketamine we give is a, an analgesic as well. So you're not just giving the one agent, you're giving two agents together. And it's about looking at the patient in the whole and trying to make sure that you're keeping them as comfortable as possible while still getting the oxygen to those brain cells, which is perhaps the key thing. And let's not forget their kidneys and other bits and pieces too. So Simon, we've just been talking about the use of fentanyl in the pre-hospital environment. And a lot of those patients that we're looking after will have traumatic brain injury. Traumatic brain injury is something we see more often these days. We see it quite often, I think, on our pre-hospital services and obviously then in the recess room because we're getting more people into hospital. And this is a review of a review article by Dan about those things that we can be doing in traumatic brain injury. Did this give you some food for thought and change what you're going to be doing for these patients? I really quite like this review article because traumatic brain injury is one of those. It's the biggest contributor to mortality and morbidity from trauma. So it's really, really important. And it's also perceived as being very, very complicated. And what I liked about this is, although the approach that Dan and colleagues have taken or described is this tiered version of how to manage severe brain injury in patients. Tier zero, which is the one that's applicable to absolutely everybody. It's relatively protocolized, but it takes you through the things that everybody should be doing, no matter where you're working in terms of emergency medicine, not in a neurosciences center. We should all be able to do, get them a bed in ICU intubate and ventilate them, look at the neurology, elevate the head of the bed to 30 to 45 degrees, which you can often do quite early. Even if you suspect there's a spinal injury, you can often elevate the head of the bed quite early on in the patient's um, journey. Analgesia, really important to manage signs of pain. And you don't have to direct that against ICP, but pain happens in head injuries. And it's not a good contributor to outcome. Sedation, prevent agitation, make sure the synchronous of the ventilator, et cetera, et cetera, and then manage their temperature. I think that's really, really basic stuff, but actually that's achievable pretty much in the recess room. And it should be, it should be done early and carried all the way through. I thought it was a really nice little paper. And then it goes on to sort of tier two, tier three stuff, you know, the tier three, you know, fire pentone infusions, ICP bolts, decompressive craniectomy. Clearly that's going to be something you'll be discussing with neurosurgical colleagues, but you can only get to that stage if you've done the basics right. And so many things that we talk about 
Ian, isn't it? About getting the basics right before you start doing the funky stuff. Absolutely. Emergency medicine is about doing the basics well. And and these in our tier zero are things we should be thinking about really for a lot of our critically ill patients, I think. Now, I'm often reminded, I listen to lots of podcasts, as you can probably imagine. One of the podcasts I listened to recently was Scott Weingart on MCRIT. And they were talking about use of arterial lines in patients with intracerebral bleeds and saying that actually in the US, it wasn't a given that you could get an art line in the US in a in a recess room. And we do need to remember that there are many different experiences about who might be able to do these things. So although we do acknowledge that some of these are simple and straightforward, that may not actually be in reality that they are, because if you're going to look after them in the emergency department, you might have the skills. Our, our trainees who are doing ACCS have all done six months of ICU and six months of anesthesia by the time they get through that. And so they'd be able to do a lot of this stuff. But what about the pressure that might be put upon them to go and see the next patient? I'll let ICU do that. There's a sprained ankle in minors who's been waiting for three hours, 50 minutes. So we do have to concentrate on giving our care to the sickest and maintaining our skills. And I think owning this, this is stuff we should own, right? Oh, we should certainly be driving it through. And I'm just thinking about this week. I've only done, not done a huge amount of clinical work this week, but I put a central line in, put a couple of art lines in, intubated someone. You know, the work is out there and it isn't me necessarily doing those. That's me helping other people go through those um, procedures and doing them under supervision. A uh, session this week where one of my colleagues put in their first ever chest strain and they walked out of recess about six foot higher. You know, they had, that was a really important thing for them. And kind of, I remember the first chest strain that I ever put in, you know, but to do that, department's busy, but taking a bit of time out to help them learn, to help teach. They got loads out of it, I'm sure. They told me they did. But I got loads out of it as well. You know, that teaching and just learning and seeing people develop. It's fantastic. And, you know, patient gets better as well. What could be what could be better? You may remember last month, Simon, it's a while ago since we talked about it on last month's podcast, but we talked about maintaining a balance, didn't we? And this is that other time where it's all too easy for the senior doctor to walk in and go, no, you don't, you don't need to do that. You can leave that to ICU or you can leave that to anesthetics or whatever it may be. But for many of us, looking after the critical patient is what we want to do. It's why we went into this. It's why I do pre-hospital care as well. And taking 10 minutes to go through putting in an art line. That's not going to make a big difference to your Q in minors. It's not going to make a big difference to your Q in majors, but it is going to give that doctor something to hold on to, some meaning making from the day. Because a lot of us like procedures. We like doing stuff. I keep saying to our medical students that emergency medicine is about a little less conversation and a little more action. So please, 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 if you are able to, and you're senior and you can Try and influence what's happening in your departments. Let our doctors do these procedures in the ED. I know that for some of us of a certain age and a certain generation, a lot of these procedures aren't natural to us. We didn't do them in our training and and actually putting an art line in or intubating somebody actually doesn't come easily to us. And admitting that is really hard. Ultrasound is another. Echo is another. But there are people who can help. And our doctors who are coming up behind us, they want to learn this stuff. It might be too late for some of us, but it's not too late for them. So give them the chance. Oh, yeah. And if they're listening to this, um, you still haven't sent me your workplace-based assessment. And also the answer to the question, how do you know when you're in the chest? How do you know when you're in the chest? You know when you're in the chest. And you did. So there you go. There's some learning there. I'm just delighted, Simon, I have to say that the main educational outcome is in what you did, not in filling in the form. Although of course, <laughs> the filling in of the form is important. And my little nugget here is if you're a trainee, and you are looking for forms to be filled in and you've just done it with a senior who supported you, hold them by the hand, take them to a computer and make them do it at the time. 
the flood of emails you get requesting work-based placed assessments, and there's nothing more frustrating the trainees tell me than not getting those forms filled in because, yes, the education happens when you're doing it. Yes, some of the education happens when you're reflecting on it. But yes, you need to be able to evidence it. So take your colleagues, lead them to the computer, say, thank you so much. That was one of the most amazing educational experiences I've ever had. Please can you fill in this form now and don't move until you have. Thanks. Yeah, fair shout. So Simon, that brings us to the end of another month. We'll be back next month for, well, no doubt a Halloween themed episode because that's what you do at the end of October, isn't it? Please, as we say every month, do, if you have a moment, go to your podcast feeder and rate and subscribe to the St. Emily's podcast. It means a lot to us. It means it gets our work out there. There will be more things coming. I'm especially excited about a project we've got going for our medical students, and there's lots of other stuff coming. So spread the word. We hope you enjoy it. And if there's anything you'd like to contribute or anything you'd like us to talk about, just let us know. We're only too happy to listen and we really want to move things forward with St. Emelins and continue to give you the stuff that helps you grow as emergency physicians, nurses, doctors, paramedics, ACPs, whatever you may be, we're all part of one big team. Take care, everyone.